Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see you all. Thanks so much for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into this sanctuary. For those that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for inviting the church into your living room or wherever you're tuning in uh, from. If you're new to Crosspoint and we've never had the opportunity to meet, my name is Jamie, and it's my joy. It's my great privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. It's also a joy to open up God's Word with you all this morning as we begin uh, a new series. Um, we're going to dive into that in just a moment, but I, I do want to just take uh, a couple moments here at, at the start of this to just uh, express gratitude. So thank you all so much. Last week was the 15-year celebration of our uh, church and how God worked in and through that. It was a great Sunday. So thank you all for being part of things. Um, and we were, well, for one, completely surprised um, at, at the, um, the generosity the kindness shown through like so many just letters and notes of encouragement, gifts that you guys gave us to the point where, you know, kids are chiming in like, that's for all of us, right? Like, um, anyway, so we had all, all of that, um, but in all seriousness to the way y'all like thought of my daughters, our daughters and gifts for them. Like it was just, uh, so encouraging. So we literally got home later that afternoon and were just like blown away by it and sort of just been living in that that space of just a lot of gratitude for allowing us the privilege of being part of what God is doing here. Um, and as I said to uh, those that are helping to lead the service th this morning, like, it continues. The celebration continues. There are less balloons today than last week, uh, but we still get to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There's much to give praise to him for. And so we're we're looking ahead. We're excited about what God is doing as Jesus promises to continue to, to build his church. And what is central to the building of that church is a right understanding of what actually happened on the cross. And so friends, this morning, we're beginning this series that'll take us all the way to Good Friday. In many ways, it's gonna, it's it's not specifically a Lent series that'll begin in a couple of weeks on Ash Wednesday, but it will cover that that whole time. And it's about this journey to the cross. And we're gonna be looking at each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tells the story of the final days of Jesus. And we're gonna be looking at and kind of zeroing in on Matthew's account of this particularly chapters 26 and 27. And so over the next several weeks, we will make our way verse by verse through chapters 26 and 27, leading up to Good Friday, and then in anticipation of Easter Sunday and all that that means as we look at Matthew's account in chapter 28. But for us to appreciate the reality of the resurrection, like we gotta spend time focusing on and, and talking about this journey to the cross. And so this morning we begin this journey in Matthew chapter 26. So I wanna invite you to have a Bible open in front of you, either uh, print one, you can use one of the Bibles that are in the pews this morning. You can also scan the QR code that's in front of you if you wanna look on your device and that'll bring up a menu uh, where you can click sermon notes. The text will be uh, listed there as well as anything I put up on the slides is there. You can also access that at thisiscp.church. Click that little next steps icon and it'll bring you to sermon notes as an option. You'll see that. But if you are able, I want to invite you to please stand as I read God's word this morning. Matthew 26, verses 1 to 16. It says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Verse six, and now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. 
And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So friends, as we get into it, we're gonna dive into this text as we explore chapter 26 and 27 together over the next few weeks. Uh, But what I wanna start by just talking even of like what we've titled this series, this journey to the cross and kind of looking at two aspects of it. The first, let's focus on this idea of the cross for a moment, right? The cross is something that certainly we see in churches, right? Uh, We see it out in what are oftentimes deemed sacred spaces, but we also just see it in pop culture at large. You don't have to look very far to see somebody wearing a cross around their neck or to have a cross displayed in their their home. But what was it? I don't know if you've ever considered this, but what was it that made this, like the central symbol of Jesus's life? Because Jesus did a lot of other things in his life, right? Like why did this thing become the symbol, right? The chosen symbol. The thing that like, as one commentator, but the matter that matters most of all the things. I don't know if you've ever contemplated that or considered those things. And how did this symbol of something that was so awful, so treacherous, so like by the Romans, they wouldn't even speak of it out in public, right? It was reserved for what they viewed as the the lowest of the low. People that were subhuman got crucified. And if you were in kind of good standing, right? Good company, like you wouldn't be out to dinner and talk about the cross. You wouldn't speak of the cross in uh, in any like normal social setting. And yet this thing emerges a couple thousand years later as still the symbol that represents all of like who we are as the church, as God's people. And how did that happen? John Stott in his great work, The Cross of Christ, I want to read to you a quote where, It's something I hadn't really considered before. He's like, let me lay out for you like some of the other symbols that could have been chosen. He says a universally acceptable Christian emblem would obviously need to speak of Jesus Christ, but there was a wide range of possibilities. Christians might've chosen the crib or manger in which the baby Jesus was laid or the carpenter's bench at which he worked as a young man in Nazareth, dignifying manual labor, or perhaps the boat from which he taught the crowds in Galilee or the apron he wore when washing the apostles' feet, which would have spoken of his spirit of humble service. Then there was the stone, which having been rolled from the mouth of Joseph's tomb, would have proclaimed his resurrection. Other possibilities were the throne, symbol of divine sovereignty, which John in his vision of heaven saw that Jesus was sharing, or the dove symbol of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven on the day of Pentecost. Stott continues and says, any of these seven symbols would have been suitable as a pointer to some aspect of the ministry of the Lord. But instead the chosen symbol came to be a simple cross. Its two bars were already a cosmic symbol from remote antiquity of the access between heaven and earth. But its choice 
by Christians had a more specific explanation. They wished to commemorate as central to their understanding of Jesus, neither his birth nor his youth, neither his teaching nor his service, neither his resurrection nor his reign, nor his gift of the spirit, but his death, his crucifixion. And so in this series, we get to explore that symbol. And what does it look like then to join Jesus on this journey? We're seeing his last couple of days before he is put to death. And that idea kind of embedded in this as we look and we're to be imitators of Christ Jesus, there's this call that he gave to us as his followers to take up our cross and to follow after him. And so there is this ongoing journey of the cross. There's the once and for all that Jesus accomplished. And all that that brought is we'll explore those implications, but then there also is this invitation to this journey. And it is a journey that shapes us. It's a journey that shaped Jesus and it's a journey that he invites us into. And we don't emerge from that as the same sorts of people. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings often spoke, many of you may be familiar with this, but he spoke of adventure stories and then there were stories that were like these journeys, or he, he liked to call it a quest. And the adventure stories were what he called the Hobbit. That was like an out and back again. It's, it's the way we go on adventures. And it's something, oh, that was fun. And that was for a time. But in a true journey or a quest, there's this sense of setting out and there's no guarantee that you will return. And if you do, in fact, get to return, you never return. We never return as the same people that left on this journey or on this quest. And so this journey to the cross, friends, is an invitation to ask the Spirit of God to, to mold us, to shape us, to not just go through this as like, oh, well, we're gonna learn about the final days of Jesus. I mean, maybe there'll be things that we learn. That's a good thing. It's not bad to learn. Maybe for some of you, it'll be more a review of what were the final days, maybe things you haven't contemplated or considered in a while. And all of that has a place and all of that can be beautiful and right and good and all of that but it would miss the mark if we don't see, no, this is a journey, that we are to, to walk with Jesus in this as we journey toward the cross together to see and understand more deeply, how does the cross shape your life and my life? And how does the cross shape our life communally in a together sense of the church, right? I mean, it's central to even our name as a church, cross point. Like, why is that there? Like, why is this the thing as Stott spoke of that like became the symbol. So to best understand that, let's look now at how this is told by Matthew. Again, we could have looked at any number of, we could have looked at, you know, Mark or Luke or John, but we're going to look at Matthew's account. And it begins, these first five verses just lays out for us. Here's the plot. Here's the plotting. Here's the strategizing. But I want us to see a couple things before we get to verses three to five that tell us about those that are plotting against Jesus. Notice how Jesus starts this, all right? So Matthew records this. It says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. And so if you were to read through all of Matthew's account, you would have known what he was referring to when he said Jesus had finished these sayings or these teachings. He just concluded in chapter 25, a long section of the teaching of Jesus. Scholars also point out something that is beautiful and brilliant that Matthew is doing that I think we can just 
you know, we can run right past that. You know, okay, he finished all these things. Well, is that cluing us into something? And I believe, yes, it is, because Matthew has structured his story, this biography of the life of Jesus into five parts. And as he has structured into five parts, four of them have been spoken of now through chapter 25, and we're moving into the final, the fifth section of the story of Jesus begins in chapter 26. And this is not by accident. It's not random. He wasn't just putting together an outline. He's like, well, I think I can tell it in five sections, right? He's like, well, that'll be enough to submit the paper for, right? He's not thinking in those categories. What he's thinking about is the first five books of the Bible. What he's thinking about under the inspiration of the Spirit is that there was the great leader, the revered one of the people of God was Moses. And Moses wrote the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that tells the story of what? Of how God raised up a deliverer, Moses, who brought the people out of slavery, led them in this movement that was pivotal to the Jewish people, known as the Exodus. And Moses got them almost to the promised land, but then failed and never got to go in with them. And it is no accident that Matthew has set this up to say, there are now five movements to this Jesus story because it's meant to help us connect the dots that like there is a new liberator, there's a new deliverer, there's a new and better Moses that is on the scene. And where he failed, the original Moses, Jesus will succeed and he will bring an ultimate deliverance in ultimate freedom. And so that's shaping and framing all of this as we get into it, all right? And then it tells us, Verses three, it says, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus. How? By stealth and to kill him. But they said, listen, we can't do this during the feast, during the Passover, lest there be an uproar among the people. So there's this plotting. There's this sinister activity that's taking place. We have Jesus who's born into poverty, no room in the inn, placed in a manger. Jesus who grows up in this no-name town of Nazareth. Jesus who lived 30 years of his life in obscurity. Jesus who was overlooked. Jesus who would become known as one who had nowhere to lay his head, that there was nothing even physically about him that drew people to him. And now what's taking place? Among the wealthy, the powerful, the elite, they are gathered in a palace amidst all the luxury and all the trappings that that would bring and all the religious power that Caiaphas held. And there they are strategizing to put him to death. It's a contrast here that we see. And yet Matthew wants us to know, God wants us to know that though they're saying, listen, we can't do this though during the Passover because there literally would have been thousands of people thousands of pilgrims on the spiritual journey coming to Jerusalem. And the last thing the Romans wanted, if you just kept the peace, you're good. But if there's any sort of uproar, they're gonna send their armies in, things are gonna go bad very quickly. And they're like, hey, we need to do this, but let's do it after the Passover. But did you notice what Jesus said? And we'll come back to this a little bit later, right? You know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And so right out of the gate, Who's really sovereign? Who's really ruling and reigning right now? Who's orchestrating this? 
Is it the plotting, the strategizing, the sinister behavior of those gathered in the lap of luxury in a palace seeking to put this peasant Jesus to death? Or is it Jesus himself, who's sovereign, who's Lord, who's ruler, who's King of kings and Lord of lords, and him saying, oh no, there is going to be a death, but it's on my timetable, in my ways, in ways that are gonna communicate fully what this cross is all about. And that's how the story begins. And then it moves, verses six to 16, we now get two very different stories, very different pictures, very contrasting images of two people who had proximity to Jesus, access to Jesus, and yet lived, responded to him, behaved in very different ways. So let's look at this. Because this journey, this invitation is not for us just to stand back and sort of objectively look at it and be like, oh, we'll get this. Let's, let's see kind of how this all plays out. But to enter into the story and to see how, how do we respond to Jesus? And so we get these contrasting pictures. And as we look at this, I read, to you, read it to you a moment ago, verses six to 16 tells us about this woman who the apostle John and his gospel would tell us is Mary. It's Mary, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus. And she is the one who responds to Jesus with this alabaster jar filled with this expensive ointment, this expensive perfume that pours it on his head. And then there's a picture, a portrait of Judas. Both Judas and Mary spent time with Jesus. Both were traveling with Jesus at times. Both had access to him. Both would have been people that would have heard him teach, would have saw the miracles, would have been part of all of that, reminding us that it is possible to be near Jesus and near his people. It's possible to be gathered here this morning in a church with a cross in the backdrop, like all these things and still to miss what it's actually all about. This section is forcing us to wrestle with this question. How do you regard Jesus? Do you see Jesus as merely useful or do you actually see him? Do I, do I actually see him as beautiful, as compelling, as the, the one that we're just drawn to? Are there things about Jesus? Is it, do we throw out all the usefulness? No, like his teachings are useful, right? His healing, all of these things are benefits, things that Jesus brings. But ultimately we need to wrestle through in this journey do we simply view him in a useful utilitarian way? And then when he stops meeting our needs in the ways that we want them met, then are we prone to just disregard him? Or do we find him so compelling, so beautiful that regardless of what happens, we just wanna be at his feet. We just wanna have that response of worship knowing that that's the best place we could possibly be. And so verse six tells this story, it says, begins the story. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined there at the table. There's a few things I think that Matthew's cluing us in on. Bethany, Simon the leper, and this woman. This is not a story that takes place at the epicenter of power. They're not in the palace. They're they're in Bethany. They're not in Jerusalem. They're not at where all the, the power brokers were. No, they're in this obscure, off the beaten path sort of place. 
And they're there in the home of what? Of Simon the leper, which means that he at one time would have been a leper and has been healed. Otherwise he couldn't have people over to his home, healed by Jesus. And yet think about it. Here's a man who lived the majority of his life up until that point, ostracized, set apart, away from everyone. When he would walk near people, he literally had to cry out, unclean, unclean, just to warn people, get out of my way, I'm coming through. Imagine the shame, the embarrassment. I mean, so this is not, again, not the palace. They're in a humble home in Bethany with Simon the leper. And then there's this woman who John identifies as Mary. But in Matthew's account, just simply speaks of this woman that emerges. And in that time, in that place, women had no social standing. It is a complete surprise to the original audience to see sort of the, the one that is spoken of with, with such love and affection that Jesus would say, she actually gets it. Her story is gonna be told forever. It's God's way of saying, I move and work in unexpected places with unexpected people in unexpected ways. If you're here this morning, you're like, man, I, I don't know if I fit in. I don't know if I, if I have the right background. I don't know if I know the right things. I don't know if I know enough about God or thought these things through. I don't know if I've got the right behavior. This is a story that says, come on, you're welcome. We're all welcome. And then it tells us, she takes this alabaster flask, which John would tell us in his account of this, the same story, that it was worth 3,000 denarii which was the equivalent of a year's wages. Think about that. This woman, we don't know much else about her background. We don't know much about her life, but what we would probably surmise in this is that this would have represented like her nest egg. This would have been her thing of safety and of security that she was holding on to. That when the time came and she was in a bad spot financially, like she could sell that and take in a year's worth of wages just to, to live off of as somebody who would have had to be concerned every moment of every day of like how she was going to survive, who's actually looking out for her. this thing represented like a ticket to survival. And as she moved toward Jesus, there's nothing about this scene, right? That, <laughs> that just like fits like normal customs expectations. You don't, we can't look at this and be like, well, it's the ancient world. This kind of thing happened all the time. No, no, it didn't. That scene of being at a dinner table, a dinner party, out at a restaurant and seeing somebody come in and literally take this thing that's worth an entire year's wages and to crack it open and not just drip a little bit onto Jesus, not just say, here, let me do this and put a little drop on your head, but she pours it out. It is a picture of extravagance. And if I'm being honest, I can understand at kind of my, the knee-jerk reaction of the disciples to be like, what are you doing? Like, how would you and I respond? It tells us the disciples saw it. They were indignant, saying, why this waste? Like, they are furious. As I read it, it seems to me like there's like a contempt that they have. There's an anger. There's a self-righteousness as they're like, oh, we would use that for the poor. It's not that Jesus doesn't care for the poor. He clearly does. You can't read about, right? And hear the story of Jesus and think somehow he doesn't care for the poor. 
But Jesus does know that he's moments, hours away from leaving this earth, from his death. And he's like, you will always have the poor. There will always be ministry to do there. But in these final moments that I have, something beautiful is transpiring here. He calls it a beautiful thing that she has done. She has made the beautiful choice to take what was most precious and valuable to her and to offer it in praise of Jesus. And yet they say, why this waste? One scholar I was reading his commentary this week said it this way. And I think this is a beautiful thing that in the kingdom of God, the things that you and I have been given to steward the good gifts that we've been given, if it is given back to the Lord in service, that in God's kingdom and his economy, nothing is ever wasted and nothing is ever forgotten by the Lord. This was not a wasteful thing. This was the best response that one could possibly have. And we're not to make this prescriptive that like, okay, now everybody, when you, when you get home, find the most valuable thing that you have, all right? Give it to Jesus, whatever, whatever that would mean. Now, he does call us to things. And the question we've got to wrestle with this morning is like, do I believe this? Do I believe that a life devoted to Jesus, seeing him not simply as useful to me and what he can provide for me, but seeing him as truly beautiful, and engaged in worship of him, do I believe that that's the best possible place to be, the best possible way to orient my life and for us to orient our lives together? Do I believe that when I offer back to God the things that he's given to me, that it's never gonna be wasted and it's never going to be forgotten? Nothing wasted, nothing forgotten. As verse 13, Jesus says this, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. How cool is that? The disciples are acting all holy, right? Oh, you could have used it for the poor, right? But deep down they're furious, there's a contempt, there's this, this anger. And Jesus like, she's done a beautiful thing. And he promises that when the story, when it says this gospel, when the story, the Jesus story is told in all times, in all places, in all contexts, in all cultures, across all ages, this woman's story will be told. And guess what? It's happening right here in Altamont Springs, Florida in a church on February 4th, 2024, right? It's happening. Jesus said that it would, and it has, and it continues to happen and it will always happen. Jesus is giving us this gift by saying, oh, she regarded me as beautiful. She wasn't viewing me through the lens of what can he do for me? I came across the, the story of uh, the author, um, Henry Nouwen. Many of you might be familiar uh, with him. Brilliant writer, thinker, had spent his entire life training in academia, right? And so he's, he's of the best of the best. He's brilliant, he's smart, he's Ivy League working at Harvard. And he tells the, the story about God's call in his life. He tells the story of, of wrestling, like, God, you've given me all this, like, and I'm kind of miserable. And here's how he describes, it. he says, everyone was saying I was doing really well, but something inside me was telling me that my success was putting my soul in danger. I found myself praying poorly, living somewhat isolated from other people 
and very much preoccupied with burning issues. I woke up one day with the realization that I was living in a very dark place. He seemingly arrived, seemingly got it all. And he says, in the midst of this, I kept praying, Lord, show me where you want me to go and I will follow you, but please be clear and unambiguous about it. Well, God was in the person of Jean Venier, the founder of La Arche Communities for mentally handicapped people. God said, go and live among the poor in spirit and they will heal you. So I moved from Harvard to La Arche, from the best and the brightest, wanting to rule the world to men and women who had few or no words and were considered at best marginal to the needs of our society. It was a very hard and painful move. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say it wasn't without difficulty, but it's a man wrestling with the alabaster jar that the Lord had given to him, wrestling with the gift that he'd been given and paying attention to what's going on at a soul level, asking the questions of like, why is there any, not any joy? I've gotten, I've accomplished, I've done all the things. Realizing in that moment with greater clarity than he had ever had before, right? That our symbol is not a ladder, but it's a cross. The calling is not just upward mobility onto the next rung, up and up we go but it's a cross, it's the downward descent. It's a willingness to say, I, Lord, I surrender it all to you because you're beautiful. I, I wanna be at your feet. And for some, that might mean leaving certain jobs, circumstances, places to go and to, to love and to serve. And yet, did you hear what happened to him? He was healed in that. This, this was mutual. There's a reciprocity here. This wasn't him going in and he's like, no, no, no something beautiful that the Lord was doing. What if he had just held on and said, no, 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 that can't be it. What is your alabaster jar? What is mine? What are the things that we look at and we're like, oh man, if I lost that, I would literally lose everything. Like life wouldn't be worth living. And it may not be that the Lord is saying, well, you got to give that thing up, but you certainly need to repent of making that thing ultimate. We certainly need to repent of the things that we're looking at to find joy and satisfaction. And the Lord is inviting us like, come and find me beautiful. Come and worship me. That's what you were created for. And what we see in this contrast, it's right on the heels of this. And John again gives, you get different insights into it. He speaks of not only did this upset, this behavior, her wasting a year's worth of income to pour out on the head of Jesus, all the disciples are upset. And it tells us Judas in particular. And John even gives a little insight. He says that, that Judas was the one who kept track of the group's finances. That he kept the, the money bag, the purse of the group, and that he would occasionally dip in and take for himself. Judas is this embodiment of what the apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the spirit, would teach all of us as the church that it is the love of money that's the root of all evil. Now hear me, 
It's not money is the root of all evil, but it's that over-desire, that, that longing that I have to have this. And so in that moment, I think what we're seeing is that Judas sees something that is happening and the economic value of it. And it's like, that's the thing that he values above anything and everything. And he just can't take it anymore. And he's like, this is stupid. This is ridiculous. And so it tells us he literally, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, he went to the chief priest. He didn't think about it. It's like this immediate response. He sees this and he's out. And he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he saw an opportunity to betray him. Friends, the scriptures speak of 30 pieces of silver in various points. One of the places it shows up in the Old Testament law, and it speaks of 30 pieces of silver as the going rate this would have been hundreds of years before the time of Judas, that if you were somebody that owned an ox and that ox somehow like got out and like trampled to death, the servant or the slave of one of your neighbors in payment for this person that wasn't even regarded as a full human being, you had to give them 30 pieces of silver. Hey, sorry for what my ox did. Sorry for destroying your property. Here's 30 pieces of silver. And as John Stott has pointed out, that's hundreds of years before Judas went there. And he literally is selling Jesus, one that he's believing now, right, is only worth to him what somebody would have paid for a servant or slave and probably like one-tenth of that value given inflation and all the things taken into account. Judas is not viewing Jesus as a savior to be worshiped. He's not viewing him as beautiful. He's viewing him through utilitarian means that he's not gonna get what he wants. Maybe he wants Jesus to overthrow the Romans. He doesn't see that happening. Money's got a hold on his heart. And at the end of the day, he's seeing Jesus then as his servant, as his slave to do his bidding. And when the Jesus movement starts to go in a different direction than what Judas wanted, guess what he does? He sells him out. And he's like, I at least got to get a little bit of cash for him. Like that's the contrast in the picture here. It's how Tim Keller speaks of like this mindset that we can have as we get confused sometimes about what brings happiness, right? He says, is God committed to your happiness? Absolutely. And yet if you come to him to make you happy, you're coming to a false God. If you say, well, I'm interested in this Christianity and maybe I'll come and bite on it. If I can see it will help me reach my goals and make me happy. Jesus is useful, right? Just viewing things in that category. You're not coming to God when that is happening. You're coming to a butler. That's the contrast here. The woman, Mary, finds Jesus beautiful, so compelling. Here's the most valuable thing to me because Jesus, you're far more valuable than this jar of ointment. You're far more valuable. Like this, this just pales, I, I don't even know, I would give you more if I could, but this is the most valuable thing. And then Judas, on the other hand, is not interested in giving, but in taking. He's not interested in Jesus to worship for who he is. This is God and the one who pursues him and offers him grace and mercy, but he's viewing Jesus as a servant, as a butler, ringing the bell, like, Jesus, get me this. And I can look at that, right? And be like, oh, that's ridiculous. I can't believe he did that. And if I stop for two seconds and think, what's going on in my own heart? What are the, the things where I'm like, I want this. I want Jesus 
to give me what I want. And when that doesn't go well, I, I've, got, I've got real issues with it. I've got real complaints to, 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 to bring to him, thinking, I know better. This is how it should be going, Jesus. How many of us are guilty of those things? Mary gives and Judas takes. The question becomes like, how are we going to respond? What's this journey going to be like? This journey to the cross that Jesus takes, but this invitation to join him as well. How might he mold us and shape us? And friends, if we want to end up like the woman, like Mary, who sees Jesus as beautiful, then we have to see the beautiful provision that he's made. We'll end with this as we look back at verse two. We looked at it a few moments ago, but here it is again. It says, you know, Jesus says, that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. It's not gonna be after the Passover as the people in the palace plot and scheme. Jesus says, no, going headlong toward Jerusalem. This scripture said with his face like flint, like he's like, I'm going and I know what's gonna cost me. I'm gonna journey all the way into that city. And there's gonna be crowds that welcome me in. And later there'll be crowds that will turn against me. And all the disciples will scatter and run. He'll be betrayed by Judas. He'll be denied by Peter. Like he knows all of this is coming. But he's like, this is the time appointed for me. This is the hour. My hour has come. It's a couple of days from now. And he says that after two days, the Passover is coming. This is no mere accident, coincidence that Jesus enters into this journey on that particular time in that particular place. Because thousands of people will be flocking to Jerusalem to celebrate what? To celebrate what's spoken of in Exodus chapter 12, where the people of God are in bondage, they're slaves in Egypt. And God tells them on a particular night, I need you to slaughter a lamb. And I need you to take the blood and put it on the doorpost. And when the angel of death comes into that region, he will pass over any of the doors where he sees the blood of the lamb and will spare the firstborn. But any that don't have it, the firstborn will be struck down. And God uses this to, to liberate them finally from the stranglehold of the Egyptians, right? It's this glorious moment. It's this highlight. This would have been the thing in the Jewish calendar. And now Jesus is intentionally going in that place as they're all gathered and they're celebrating the reality of the firstborn, their firstborns being passed over. Now the firstborn of all creation is willingly going in and he will be slaughtered. He will be, as the apostle John said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus will be crushed. He will be punished in our place. He will die the death that you and I deserve and he will willingly go so that we can be brought in. Friends, if we want to see Jesus as beautiful, we gotta keep looking to the cross. We need to keep seeing his sacrifice. The one who says there was nothing about him that would compel people to look at him. And then the abject horror that it was to see him out on that cross. And yet that scene, to see Jesus as truly beautiful, the more you and I see him as beautiful, the firstborn of all creation who was not passed over, but was punished, your place and my place, 
the more that grips our hearts, the more we will be freed up to live the kind of lives where we're like, Lord, it's an alabaster jar. Sure, yeah, this thing's great. Thank you for it, but it's no big deal. Sure, I'll, I'll willingly give that to you. I'll go and love and serve. I will not be owned by these things that we're no longer owned by the talents we've been given, right? The money we've been given, the time, the place, any of the, those things, we live open-handed with it. And that is the best possible place to be. So friends, may we marvel again, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We're gonna continue now in our service. We're gonna, worship team's gonna come back and lead us a song. We get to partake in this meal together. We remember these truths. We celebrate these truths of what Christ has done. Before we do that, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace toward us. Thank you for even the, allowing us the privilege of starting this new series. And I pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, that you would take us on a journey and that it would be a journey that would bring transformation, that it would bring healing, that it would bring conviction of sin, but also that gospel comfort would be applied over and over and over again. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to die for us. Jesus, we thank you for the beautiful act of your cross. We thank you that by that sacrifice, you have begun this, this whole process that it led to resurrection, it led to newness of life. It, it's leading to the recreation, the renewal of everything where you're gonna make everything beautiful, completely beautiful. And so we thank you that that's the story that we're part of. Would you be at work informing and shaping us to be a beautiful people that love to tell the beautiful story of Jesus. May we find you so compelling, so winsome, so beautiful that we can't help. We would gladly give up any of the things that you've given to us for the joy that comes in just following you and knowing you. So God, work for your glory and our joy, we pray in Christ's name, amen.